Sometime back in 2016, a friend and I went to visit one of Bandon's most loved residents in Marymount Hospice. Like his father before him, John O'Driscoll of Kilbrogan Hill was a veterinary surgeon and was referred to affectionately by all as John Doc. John was his usual cheery self when we met him and instantly resorted to one of his favourite pastimes, storytelling. Unfortunately, John did not recover and he died soon afterwards on September 10th, 2016, on the eve of his 85th birthday. Not long before that, I was lucky enough to have the pleasure of sitting with him for two days in his home on Kilbrogan Hill, as he recounted many stories spanning two generations of veterinary surgery. John's story begins with his father, who was horse-fed to the dreaded and hated General Percival and the Essex Regiment during Ireland's War of Independence. Because he had gained their trust, John's father was in an excellent but dangerous position to pass on information to the local IRA. But John's story is not all about veterinary life and animal welfare, because John's memories also delve into the social fabric and life of a local town, a county, and indeed a country. It's two programs, but could easily have been six, as John had so much to tell. It's been one of the most requested programs in the Where the Road Takes Me series, and this evening and Sunday evening next, you'll hear the best of it. So, good evening, and welcome to Where the Road Takes Me. Cornelius Arnelis O'Driscoll qualified as a veterinary surgeon in Dublin in 1915. He came to Bandon soon afterwards, setting up a practice in the town and living initially in Lee's Hotel, now the Monster Arms Hotel. He married Mary Murphy from Michels in 1923 and they set up home in Kilbrogan Hill. Both were affectionately known as Neelis and Rosie. But these were troubled times in Bandon. During the War of Independence, the feared and hated Essex Regiment had their headquarters here. Neelis, who was known as the Horse Doctor, became the horse vet to the regiment and had a regular presence in the barracks. As a result, he was in an ideal position to pass on information to the IRA, which he did. John was Neelis and Rosie's only child. As a young lad, travelling around with and learning from his veterinary father, it was no surprise that he would eventually follow in his father's footsteps. But for his father Neelis, life as a young vet and the abandon of the early 1900s was difficult. The only means of transport was the horse, who reigned supreme. Life was tough. The horse was king. The horse was king in the sense that he did all the work on the farm. He brought the family to mass, to schools, to football matches on Sundays, unless you had a bicycle course. Father was known as the horse doctor uh, because calls at that time were basically to horses. Cows and sheep and pigs weren't worth calling the vet out to. How times have changed. When he was in Bandon in 1915, there was one vet in Kinsale, one vet covering Connacilty and Dunmanway, one vet in Bantry, one vet in McCroom, two in Cork. And they were all employed by the county council. And their job was to see that the milk that was being produced and the slaughterhouses that the animals that were killed were in good order. So it's a great compliment to them that during those tough days, nobody ever died from any disease from milk or from any meat they ate. Now, there was quite a danger about drinking unpasteurized milk. He went out one night 
on a call way north of Dunmanway uh, about three o'clock in the morning to see a sick horse. He treated a horse and he went in to wash his hands. And while he was doing that, he thought a voice from heaven spoke, but it was a voice from out of the ceiling, a trapdoor. How's the horse, doctor? He said, I'm very well, thank you. He said, I'm not interested in you, I'm interested in how is the horse in the stable? Oh, he said, he'll be all right. You're the first doctor, human or otherwise, ever to come up this lane. Father didn't like to say, if we were down, we wouldn't be up here again. How much do we owe you, doctor? Oh, he said, five pounds for the taxi and five pounds for me. Yeah, he said, ten pounds, you better open the boot of the car and take the bloody horse away altogether. There was a sequel to that. About a month later, when he was on duty in the fair in Ballinneen, a man walked up to him and caught him by the coat and said, You're Driscoll the vet. He said, I am. You don't know me. Well, I'm the fellow who spoke from the ceiling that night about the horse. I was sick, the horse was sick, and we thought you were dear, but you were cheap. The two of us got better. Come in and I'll stand you a glass of whiskey. It would be difficult for the present generation to understand the importance of the horse in the early 1900s. He doubled up as a work companion and a vital means of transport. As a young fellow myself, I can see children being driven up this hill to school in the convent in a top trap, maybe six or seven of them being inside in it. My mother, as a young lady, there used to drive into Bandon by horse and parked the horse in the Devonshire Arms Hotel next door. Father was a very good horseman as well, so he, in his younger days, would also ride out to calls on horseback. He was appointed a veterinary officer to the Essex and Wessex Regiment that were stationed here in the square. And as visiting the place to see the horses, he got to know many of the officers, including the commanding officer, Major Percival. He also made an arrangement when hostilities started down here in West Cork with the local commanders that any information that he would gain from the officers would always be used for not to be used as an ambush. So the officers would come and drink in the hotel in the evening and father would join them and when they got a little mogalore he would find out where they were going the following day. When they went back to the barracks there was a gentleman called Sonny O'Sullivan who had a car, a hackney car, he'd be waiting in the yard for the information. So he'd head for Noosestung or Ballinadee or some area like that to give word to the lads to get out of the area. Again, the clear understanding never to be set for an ambush. So when it was all over, he felt very pleased. Nobody had died and he was never copped on for <laughs> passing the information. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Was there ever any suspicion on him that he was passing information on him? No. The only nasty time he had was one night riding his horse, coming back from a call, he was pulled by the curfew patrol and they levelled their rifles at him. They said, you Fenian so-and-so, you have a bomb tied on to the back of your saddle. They insisted that he would take this down and throw it on the ground while they all stood back. Naturally enough, all that was in it was a few bottles and things and they had syringes and they broke. He was left go, but he reported it to Percival the following day. Percival demanded the officer that was in charge of the patrol to be brought in. He said, you stopped Dr. O'Driscoll last night and made him throw down his bag, even though he was a blue cross. 
The officer said, yes. Well, you know, and Percival said to him, Mr. O'Driscoll will give an inventory of everything that was broken and it'll be deducted from your salary and never stop that man again. And he never was stopped after that. You became a veterinary surgeon yourself afterwards, so that would suggest to me that you were, were you influenced quite a lot by, by your father? Oh, from early days, I would go in the car with him on calls. Just give you an idea of the way things were in the country then. There were times when I wouldn't be allowed out of the car because so many people were sick with TB. TB was rife in the country, and there was no drugs for it. All you had was sanatoriums and trying to get people stronger as best they could. Thanks be to God, now with the advent of uh, modern drugs, we have this disease reasonably under control. Also, this disease of TB was in cattle, and another one that was there, but funny enough wasn't as serious at that time, was brucellosis. TB in cattle, uh, the cattle became emaciated and had a chronic cough, and father being the local veterinarian for the county council and would come out, and he would slaughter this animal, and some glands would be sent to Dublin, to the laboratory in Dublin to be examined, and the farmer would be compensated for this animal. Uh, a brucellosis, that caused cows to abort. Cowboys and Indians hurling in football were all means of passing the time for young lads in the early part of the 20th century. Later, as a 17 or 18-year-old, John O'Driscoll was able to add the pictures and dating to his list of social activities. But there was one occasion when a cow who was calving took precedence over a date at the pictures. But this was all part of the learning process of becoming a vet for John Dock. Pictures. Going to the pictures on a Sunday night was a very big thing. When I was maybe 17 or 18, I had a date one Sunday night and uh, I we went early to get a seat. Normally on a Sunday night when you might see a lady sitting on the stairs, you might get up and give her your seat. But this night I said to this young lady, wild horses won't pull me away from here tonight. A bad statement to make. The picture hadn't started long when Mr. Castles came down with the torch and shone it in my face and called me, your father wants you. When I went out to the car, father said, come on, he said, I'm sorry to take him from the picture. There's a cow calving and I'm going to let you do the calving case yourself. I was not in the veterinary college or anything at this time. While I was a bit annoyed about going from the pictures, I was rather thrilled to think that I was now going to do the calving case myself. We arrived at the yard and the farmer had the hot water and the soap and towel ready. And I stripped off to examine my cow while father and the farmer discussed the monster final that had taken place that day. After a while, my father looked and he said, I don't see any calf. What are you doing? I said, Daddy, I can't find the calf. Come out of my way. Why didn't I leave you at the pictures? Oh, I felt very small while he went to examine the cow. And after a while, he looked at the farmer and said, 
John is right. There is no calf in this cult. Oh, gosh, doctor, there has to be. When we were going to the monster final today, she was beginning to calve. And when we came home, she's forcing and she has to have a calf. Well, father said, she may have a calf, but he's not there now. Anyway, the mystery was solved the following day when another son called. He had called on the Sunday afternoon, found nobody at home, found the cow after calving, fed the calf and planked him in a corner. I never told anybody. I was greatly relieved that night. There were many changes down through the years that John remembers made life easier for both Fett and Farmer. One that stands out would be rural electrification, a subject we covered extensively in a recent edition of Where the Road Takes Me, which looked at the flooding of the Guerra. During the 1930s, most towns in Ireland were connected to the national grid or had local production. The outbreak of World War II in Europe led to shortages and, as a result, the electrification process was brought to a halt. In the early 1950s, the scheme was uh, gradually brought about to the countryside and it was finished completely in 1973. To a vet going out in a call in the olden days, and I in the young days, you had the light of a lantern, the light of a tilly lamp or a torch, and the joy of going out and turning on a light was immense. The farmer's life changed as well because from hand-milking the cow, he now turned over to having milking machines and eventually milking, par- uh, milking the cows in the stall and milking parlours. So the farming life has changed in a big way during my life. And I think the modern farmer still owes his grandparents and his parents who kept farming through terrible difficult times a great word of thanks. You know, people have forgotten about the, ne- the economic war when the government, the Fianna Fáil government, decided not to pay the tithes to the British government. And the British government literally banned all exports to England, with the result that trade in the 30s for a number of years totally collapsed. My uncle Dan Murphy was a cattle dealer, and he tells his story one day in Ballinine Fair. The fair, nothing was being sold Nobody wanted to buy anything, and the fair was emptying when this man came up to him and said, Mr. Morphy, will you buy a cow? Well, he said, I've no interest in buying a cow. I'm not interested in cow. Oh, Mr. Morphy, if somebody doesn't buy this cow, I have no money to feed my children. So Dan said, come on, I'll have a look at this cow. When he saw her, he knew why nobody wanted to buy her. (laughs) She was a proper screw, as we call her. He said, how much do you want for the cow? 30 shillings, sir. I won't give you 30 shillings for her. I'll give you three pounds for her. He felt sorry for the man. He bought the cow. I think she didn't see Bandon alive, but at least the family were failed. <laughs> when I qualified first, calls to pigs were nearly 50% of every day's calls. And out the country, you always had that every farmer nearly had a sow and bonnets and pigs. They're all gone today. You have just big, massive units of pigs. The day where they fell a- kept the pig in the backyard is gone.